Hail and well met. I'm guessing you're wanting shelter from the storm, right? Well, it is a cold night out there. Why don't you pull up a chair by the fire? I have just the thing to pass the time. A story. I call it the tavern at the end of the world. Welcome to the Lavender Tavern, my friend. If you venture far enough to the west, the world comes to an end. Leave your town, forsake your village, abandon your hamlet, and wander the land, always facing the sunset. After the last few settlements have faded, and the cobblestone road has become a dirt path, and then a mere hint of wheel tracks in the grass, you will come to a single, low-slung building at the end of the world. It has no name. It needs no name. There is a sign outside that reads, Last Chance for Supplies. The lettering of the sign has faded. Worse, the lettering has been eaten away, like everything else, by the fog. For beyond the building, there is a line of rolling fog that never moves eastward and never recedes westward. It stands guard in a long, straight line that stretches past where the eye can see. There is no further going west unless you step into the cold, unknowable fog. And if you are standing at the edge of that fog, trying to peer into what lies beyond, and thinking about those who have already come this way, it may occur to you to pause for just a moment, to turn and look at the low stone building with a thatched roof and smoke coming from a chimney at one end, to walk away from the mist even five feet away from it is a relief and put a hand on the stone next to the building's door, where a bronze plate has also been worn down by time and the fog. The bronze plate, if you pass your fingers over it, will tell you that the name of the building is The Tavern. But anyone who has heard of it from travelers and explorers knows it as The Tavern at the End of the World. Inside, there is a giant burly man tending bar. He has long, blonde red hair and braids down his back, and his beard is also braided. He conceals his belly, unsuccessfully, under a large leather apron. On this night, the man, Kale, is polishing mugs. There are no guests at the tavern tonight. A willowy black woman named Bologna is straightening the tables and chairs. They are both quiet, listening to the wind and the snow howl outside. It is an hour before closing, and Kale is contemplating closing up early. He walks to the front door and pushes it open a crack to look out, shivering at the frosty winter air. The fog has caused the stones in the wall to settle, and Kale is the only one who can fully close the door. The night is a sliver of black. Before Kale can use his meaty hands to slam the door shut, he sees the Traveler. The person is struggling through the wind, staggering from step to step, 
but clearly moving towards the tavern. Kale calls back to Bologna, A guest! and steps out into the storm, heedless of the driving snow. The traveler is heavily bundled up in furs and leathers, and only once Kale has brought him inside and the traveler has peeled the outside clothes away that he is revealed. A young man of no more than twenty and five. Standing by the fire, he warms himself, and Kale notes the man's lean, muscular body and piercing blue eyes. The young man turns and, seeing Kale's glance, smiles. His gaze passes to a deck of cards strewn on one of the tables. "'Do you play hearts?' the young man asks in a soft tenor voice. "'No,' Kale replies, and hears the deep rumbling in his own voice for what seems like the first time. "'That deck is for customers.' The young man pulls his arms around himself as if for warmth, but Kale senses disappointment. "'I am a cane,' he says after a time." A silence. You must be hungry, Kale offers shyly. Can we get you some dinner? Is it good? Achaean asks, then shakes his head. It is the only meal available within a day's walk. Of course it is good. Please. Bologna, who has been watching this interplay, moves towards the kitchen, but Kale stops her with a paw. She raises an eyebrow, then goes over to Achaean. You are quite brave to come out all this way, Bologna says. This is what she usually says to travelers, the male, handsome ones, and often it works. When it does not, sometimes it works if Kale says it. Achaean's eyes, however, are looking toward the kitchen. Yes, there are many legends about the end of the world. I'm sure you've heard them all. Bologna smiles. I have heard legends from every town in the land. If you tell me where you're from, I can tell you their stories. Achaean shakes his head. It does not matter where we start out. We shall all arrive together at the end. One of our poets said that. Bologna does not know poetry, and so she says nothing, until Kale brings out a wooden tray with a hearty meal and a tankard of ale. Kale can see the food hunger in Achaean's eyes, and their game of watching each other comes to a quick stop. Let us go put up the chairs in the back, Kale says to Bologna, and motions her away from Achaean's table, where a feast is now in progress. No, please, Achaean says suddenly, lifting his head from the food, beard damp with stew juice, which he mops up with a cloth. I bid you stay with me and give me some company. I have been on the road, or whatever passes for a road out there, for so long without another soul. I need some company on this snowy night. And when Kale and Bologna look at each other uncertainly, Achaean adds, I'd be happy to buy you each nail if you join me. There are no other customers. The night is cold and wintry. So Kale pours two more ales, and he and Bologna sit across from an increasingly satisfied Achaean. Once Achaean has finished the meal, he asks, Where did all this come from? Did you build the tavern? His eyes are very, very blue, Kale notes. Achaean is waiting for an answer. Ah, Kale says, feeling clumsy and a bit foolish in his burliness. 
Adventurers have been passing this way and going beyond the end of the world for tens of years, perhaps hundreds of years. There were no supply stops, and many froze or starved or perished in other ways before they reached the edge. I decided to build a tavern here to serve what you may call a captive market. He shrugs. The rest of the story is for another time. A can slams down the empty tankard. Yes, a story! A story is what I want. He looks back and forth between Kale and Bologna. We travelers have little else for currency but the stories we bring. If you care to tell me a story of yours, I will tell you one of mine. Kale sits back. A rejection, Achaean wonders. But Bologna is smiling, and Achaean can see a story unspooling in her mind. She leans forward and says, I will tell you my story. I had always been a bookish type, Bologna said, and so my parents despaired that I would never marry. When a famous cartographer came to our town, they bargained with her to take me. I know not what they asked in exchange for me, but Saren the cartographer was happy to have someone to carry her scrolls and books, sharpen her quills, and haul her packs. I had been born in the town of Wells, and with Saren we traveled from Wells to Antimony, from Antimony to Emogate, from Emogate to Jordan Crossing, and from Jordan Crossing, well... From there, the land opened up, and we had the world at our heels. Saren and I traveled long and far across the land, north and south at first, and then covering all of the distance east until we arrived at the ocean. I learned how to sew, and how to mend, and how to cook for a finicky cartographer, and care for a sick cartographer, and heal a lovesick cartographer. I saw a town where everyone was a different shade of blue. Light, medium, dark, all the blues you can imagine. I saw a town dug into a quartz outcropping a mile long. I saw a village on stilts that the villagers picked up during storms and wars and moved to safer grounds. Once we had finished traveling north and south and east, of course we went west. Saren wanted to travel beyond the known world. She wanted to go past the edge and map the other side. I knew no other life, and no other person in my life, so we went west together. And finally, we came to the fog and stood at the end of the world, and I realized that I did not want to go past the boundary. Saren went ahead, and I came to this tavern to rest for the night. In these days... Many explorers were trying to conquer the edge, and Kale was run ragged. I offered to help, and he offered me a job. She stretches out her hands to encompass Kale, the roaring fire in the hearth, and the rest of the tavern. And here I am today. Achaean smiles. 
Do you not want to find out what is beyond the edge? He asks. No, Bologna answers. I have seen and experienced and learned all that our land holds. There is no more mystery to it. If I were to go beyond the edge, that mystery would be snuffed out as well. As long as I stay on this side of the fog, I have one last mystery to keep in my heart. I can peer out at the edge whenever I want to. She pointed to a window at the back that looked out onto the fog, crisscrossed by snowfall. Did Saren ever come back? Achaean asks quietly. Kale leans forward at this point, eager to add something to the conversation that seems to have slipped away from him. More than half of those who pass beyond the edge never return. He frowns thoughtfully. Or, at least, they have not returned so far. Some of those who come back bring treasure, Bologna explains, and some are locked within their minds and never wake. No one has ever remembered what happened to them on the other side. There is a moment of shared silence as the wind batters the shutters of the fog-laden window. Then Achaean asks Kale, blue eyes burning, What do you think is on the other side? I have not been on the other side, Kale says simply, and rises to secure the shutters. He is a man of few words, Bologna whispers to Achaean. And I like that, Achaean says. Ah, Bologna thinks. Another round for us? he asks. Kale returns with the ales, and he and Achaean share a silent look. He feels a longing, something he has not reckoned with for many years. From Achaean's sharp eyes, it seems that the young man feels it too. Bologna's exasperated expression suggests that she too feels it. <laughs> and now it is your turn, Kale tells Achaean, smiling. You wanted to trade in the currency of explorers. Bellina and I have been tending the tavern for months with no new tales. What stories do you have for us? The smile Achaean gives Kale is perhaps too close, too intimate, but he collects himself and nods. Yes, a story. Then, pulling his chair a bit closer to the rough-hewn table, Achaean says, This is the story of someone who could have anything they wanted except for their heart's desire. There was a town, Achaean said, called Galatium. This was a fancy name for a town, and yet it was little more than a hamlet, with a church and perhaps ten houses and some common buildings. I know Galatium, Bologna says, wrinkling up her nose. They did not like that Saren was a cartographer and a woman. Nor did they like that I was assisting her and a woman, or that we were unaccompanied by men. Yes, Achaean continued, Galatium was a village of traditional men. The men led the village, and the women were told from birth that their role was to serve the men. One year, a baby girl was born into the largest family. They named her Havila. Ordinarily, Havila would have served and listened and married and had children. 
but Havila liked to fight. She liked to play with toy swords, and she liked to play in the dirt and mud and come home with soiled and torn clothes, having sparred with some of the local boys and having taught them that women too can fight. Her parents scolded her and told her time and time again that this was not a proper pastime for girls. Havila was to learn music and to write perfumed letters and stitch happy messages. Havila had a friend, Orlo, a boy one year younger than she. While he had been happy to fight and wrestle and make mud pies with her, once she followed more ladylike pursuits, it seemed that Orlo was even happier. When Havila was sixteen, she escaped from the music and perfumed letters and happy messages. She ran into the forest, telling not even Orlo she was leaving, and she laughed and ran and jumped in the mud as much as she desired. And then she stole some clothing from the men of her own family and bound her chest tight and put dirt on her face and cut her hair short with a sharp rock. And she presented herself to a group of men who were fighting on behalf of Galatium and other nearby villages. Avila was naturally gifted at fighting and at swordplay. She would have succeeded at her aims, only one day she gashed her leg, and the healer had to remove her leathers to treat her. She begged the healer not to say anything, but the healer believed that the men should rule and women should serve. He sent a message to her father. "'I understand what you wish,' her father said. Her father did not understand, for as a man, he had been granted everything he desired." That is simply how people are, men and women. We are different for a reason. A reason? Havila told Orlo bitterly. There is no reason that one must lead and one must follow. I will not follow. They were in the town library, where Havila had dragged Orlo to look up tomes on a particular obscure subject. They were surrounded by dusty books and scrolls, and Orlo thought Havila had never looked prettier. There is a reference here, Havila pointed to one scroll, and a recollection here, and it is all very difficult to follow, but I have ascertained the truth. Orlo said, There is no truth here. There is only fantasy. Havila rolled up the scroll with quick, jerky movements. There are two wizards, one in the north and one in the south. They can do what I ask. You cannot become a man as much as you would like, Orlo said. It is beyond magic. Havila tossed her head. I can do whatever I wish. If I must become a man to live the life of a man, then I shall ask one of the wizards to cast a magic on me. Orlo placed his hand on hers. Would you stay if I offered you all the benefits of being a man? You could have the run of our household. You could make all of the decisions. She pulled away slowly. "'I have told you that I do not love you, Orlo,' Havila said. Then, seeing his forlorn face, "'There is no fault in you, but you are a man, and I love only women.' "'You only love women because, in truth, you wish to be a man,' he said very quietly. "'All right, Orlo, I will never go through with it,' Havila promised." I tell you, I will never go through with it, on my grandmother's grave. She was lying, 
her grandmother was yet alive. That was the last they spoke on the subject, or on any subject. Once Havila had saved enough of her allowance, she scrounged up an explorer's pack, walking clothes and staff, and she left Galatium for the south. The northern wizard seemed just as skilled as the southern wizard, but Havila did not like the cold, and so she traveled south. She met monsters and foul weather and pirates and liars and knaves, and she reached the south, where the wizard had a simple hut. How much? she demanded of the wizened fellow in the rune-inscribed robes. How much to transform me into a man? He wrinkled up his nose. You have been traveling very long, and your manner has the roughness of an explorer, he shrugged. I can transform you if you stay for a month, but you must know what you will be. I will be able to lead and rule and decide, Havila said. She did not want to hear any more, but the wizard went on. You will grow hairs here and there, and your body will become hard instead of soft. You'll become clumsy at times, and headstrong, and have sudden anger. You will know courage and fear together, and you will not love those you love now. Havila smiled. I already have hair here and there, and I am hard and clumsy and angry and... She looked at him carefully. What do you mean, those you love now? Do you love men, women, both, or neither? The wizard asked solemnly. Women, she said. Then, once the transformation is complete... You shall love only men. For a woman to love women was not spoken of in Galatium, but it was known to happen. For a man to love another man in Galatium, oh, this was impossible. It was unmanly, and it left no possibility of family heirs. But Havila was determined, and she nodded at the wizard and brashly said, Let us begin! Thirty days later, Havel set off from the South Wizard's hut back towards Galatium. The trip was easier and faster because of his new strength and size and because monsters fled before his sword. Also, Havel admitted privately to himself one night as he camped by a fire, because he longed to see Orlo. What had been friendship and affection for Orlo as Havel the woman now was attraction and something close to love as Havel the man. It was unthinkable. It was impossible. But Havel knew he and Orlo could manage it. Until he arrived at Galatium and found Orla. Havila had told Orlo she would never change her body or her mind. For Orlo, the only way he could have Havila was to become the woman she wanted. And so, he went to the Wizard of the North through the marshes and swamps and ice flows and glaciers. Thirty days later, Orla returned to Galatium and discovered that Havila was missing. The northern wizard was less scrupulous than the southern wizard and asked 
50 gold pieces of Orlo for the transformation. He also failed to tell Orlo that, though he currently loved women, once he became a woman, he would love men. They tried to make it work. They tried kissing and snuffing a candle out before bed and lighting more candles and incense and prayer and meditation. But Havel could only love a man, and Orlo was now a woman. Orlo had also been betrothed at a young age to a woman, and now Orla could never marry her. Her parents shunned her, and the town shunned both of them. Havel was stronger than she was. One day, he woke up to find Orla gone. I'm going past the end of the world, Orla's note read in simple blocky script. Havel had no family, no love, and no friend left. And so he packed his explorer's pack and put on his walking clothes again and left for the West. And that, McCain said, is as much as I know. Kale nodded. Havel stopped at the tavern, he said. He never spoke of this adventure, though. Did Orla stop here? Achaean asked. Bologna looked at the energy flowing between the two of them and felt forgotten. Kale shook his head. She went on directly through the edge, as if there was nothing there to stop her. He sighed. The only thing Havel told me was of his trip west. Fighting and exploring... I understand now why he made such mention of these manly things. Achaean looked out the fog-bound window at the edge. I wish, he said quietly, I wish I had met him. That kind of bravery and courage, to go into the unknown, is most attractive. Many consider going beyond the edge to be a fool's errand, Bologna said. Achaean shook his head. I meant in becoming a man. To risk one's life to become the other, that takes bravery and courage. And another look and smile passed between him and Kale. Truly, Bologna thought, perhaps it would make sense for her to become a man for all the interest Kale received from travelers. An ember popped in the hearth and threw sparks, and Kale rubbed his forehead. Now it is my turn, he rumbled. This is also the story of someone who could have anything they wanted, except their heart's desire. And he began his story. Darrow, Kale said, had a good life. His parents were of moderate wealth, and he was born into a healthy family, and he would inherit land and fertile crops when he came of age. He had even gone to school to learn a trade. But the one thing Darrow could never find was love. He had no lack of suitors, for it was men that Darrow fancied, because of his family's wealth, his handsome countenance, and his charm and education. There was always something wrong, some flaw that came between them and Darrow. The suitors were too loud or too quiet, or cruel or kind to the point of sacrifice. Over time, he welcomed more suitors, even those to whom he felt no interest. But that was even worse. As Darrow grew older, 
His parents became concerned that they would never have another child, and encouraged him to wed a woman in order to continue the family line. Sodero sought women as suitors, and there too, they were too soft or too hard, or too much like a cat, or, alas, too much like a dog. After another year had passed, his parents told him that they would have to adopt an unwanted boy from the local healer if he could not start a family. Darrow's aunt Sofa was the type to believe in any cantrip or magic, true or false. She sprinkled foul-smelling water on his forehead and told him of an equivalency curse. His parents, Aunt Sofa said, many years ago had wished for success and health and happiness. But the scales of justice must be balanced eventually, and to repay the good luck his parents had sought, Darrow would have to suffer the bad luck of being alone. Perhaps a mage can lift this curse, she said, but the only mage in town was Max, someone who had already pursued Darrow as a suitor, and who Darrow had turned down for being too loud. I won't help you, Max bellowed, and Darrow backed out of the healer's tent, ears ringing. So Darrow sent messengers out to nearby towns. If you can lift the spell, he wrote many, many times, then I shall offer you a reasonably large sum of gold. Many tried. There was a woman with a spiral disc that turned and turned, and the man with a caged owl, the crone with three potions, red, blue, and gold, and a group of little people with their musical instruments. The result? A spell of dizziness from the spinning disc, a peck on the nose from the owl, a stomachache from the potions, and a wonderful concert from the little people. But the spell could not be lifted, if it was indeed a spell. Then one day, a young woman arrived. Her name was Emelian, and she moved with brisk efficiency, long black hair tied back in a hank of leather and a mended skirt and blouse. He told her his problems. By now, he could recite them very quickly and accurately. She listened and took notes. Emelian began to prepare incantations and herbs. Hearing the incantations and sniffing the herbs, Aunt Sofa nodded and pronounced Emelian to be the genuine article. Emelian went into town and brought back a large slate and chalk. Here, she said, setting it up at one end of his chambers. Write down what you want in a suitor, whether he be tall or dark or fair or fat or smart or foolish. While Darrow pondered the attributes of the man he sought, Emelian burned herbs. Finally, he wrote several lines onto the slate, and she nodded. Spend an hour every day contemplating this list, she said. At the end of a month, you will have your answers to the man who you will truly love and then I shall be back for the gold. Darrow sat before the slate every day, 
gazing at it for hours, until his eyes teared and the lines blurred. He stared and stared, day after day. Nothing. He meditated. Nothing. He prayed. Nothing. He exercised. Still nothing. He chanted. Even more nothing. And when the thirty days were nearly up, Darrow cried, despairing that he would be single all his life. The thirtieth day came, and Darrow paced his chambers. This is it, he thought. There is no more time. He turned to the slate, and he gazed at it once more. But now he truly saw what he had written. The list of attributes his ideal mate must have. Many men were honest, and many men were sweet, and many men were kind. But how many men spent every day writing, and how many played at sport, and how many liked music? As his mind traveled down his list of requirements, he had only reached halfway through the slate when he realized that of the potential suitors in the world, there would be none left. Even if a thousand men stood in the same boundless room, he could go through each one and not find a perfect suitor. Emelian returned, but now she had no herbs or incantations. I understand, Darrow said to her. There are requirements, Emelian said, and there are wishes. Those who confuse the two will find no love even among a thousand men in an immense room. He looked at her sharply and thought that his aunt's sofa's judgment might indeed have been true. Is there hope? Darrow whispered. Is there truly someone out there for me? Her eyes were hazel, the hazel of the setting sun and fires burning low. There is one man for you, Amelian said in a low voice, as if she did not see Darrow but the world laid out before her. You will not know him when you meet him. She pointed to the slate, which still bore his list. He will have one of these traits, only one, but the most important one. Since then, Kale concludes, Darrow has been wandering the land, going from village to village and town to town looking for his beloved, but never, so far as I have heard, finding him. The fire has burned down low in the hearth, and they are surrounded by shadows. Achaean stands and stretches his arms. It is time for me to depart, he tells them. Bologna senses a plea from Kale to be alone, and she wanders off to the back of the room to wipe mugs that are already clean. Kale assists Achaean in dressing in his furs and leathers and hefts the pack onto Achaean's back. They stand looking at each other one last time. The slate, Kale asks. Was it really most important for you that your man play the game of hearts? He picks up the deck of cards from the table. Achaean smiles sadly at Kale. If you could play the game of hearts then you would not be the man I seek. 
Emelian told me that my love would only have one of the attributes that I sought. Kale spreads the deck of cards out, face up on the table, and pushes out the Lady of Hearts card with a stubby index finger. I never did learn to play at cards as a child, he admits. It was a game for boys, and I was busy playing music and writing perfumed letters. A smile of recognition between them. Will you be going then? Kale asks. I do not wish to keep you from your search. Achaean looks at the door, then back down at the cards. No, he says finally. It is a cold, bitter night. Best to wait. Hefting the pack back onto the floor, Achaean sits down at the table and starts shuffling the deck with a practiced hand. Would you like me to teach you the game of hearts? he asks. Kale turns the other chair around and sits down, arms across the chair's back. I believe that I can learn it, if you're willing to be patient. And Bologna watches the two explorers lean in close to each other, faces silhouetted by the ember light, and she smiles. Ah, look at that. The storm is settling and you are free to go. Of course, you're always welcome to sit by the fire and stay a while. There are many more nights and many more stories. Tonight's story was told by Joe Cruz. Find our credits, merch, and more stories at LavenderTavern.com. Interested in having your short story told at the Lavender Tavern? Submit a copy of your writing to us at www.faustianonsense.com forward slash Lavender Tavern submissions. The Lavender Tavern is written by Jonathan Cohen and produced by Faustian Nonsense.